Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Thanks for joining us on this Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. I, uh, the message today that I have entitled is, is Restored. And I don't know about you, but that word speaks to me. I was looking it up what it means. It means to put back into usefulness or service, to revitalize, to renew, to rejuvenate to recover a sense of meaning and purpose. Sound good? In this time that we've been going through, uh, I heard something the other day that resonated, and I I thought I would share it with you. Counselor and author John Eldridge said these words about what we've been going through together. 20 years ago, after the SARS virus left Hong Kong, scientists discovered PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, throughout the population even though it had only lasted four months there. We are all in recovery from a traumatic event. Trauma disconnects your brain. The hemispheres of your brain stop talking to one another. People have been totally traumatized by the last 12 months. People are really struggling mentally. In fact, we call it COVID brain. We have all been through global trauma, having your daily norm taken away from you, lockdowns for extended periods of time, social unrest, being bombarded with negative news every day like death counts, etc., and then to be kept in a state of constant uncertainty. This is what you do, he said, to prisoners of war to break them down. You take away their normal, you disrupt their sleep patterns, you keep them in a state of constant uncertainty. You bombard them with negative information, and it breaks human beings down. I don't know if you feel like that's a little bit exaggerated, but I don't think we're going to know for a while the effects of what we've gone through. And one thing's for sure, there's been times where all of us in our life, whether it's been this last 12 months or not, I don't know how you come today. All of us know what it's like to be broken down mentally and needing to be restored. And so what I want you to see this morning, if you're following along, is that Jesus comes to Peter, who's beaten down mentally. On this Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about a resurrection appearance that Jesus made to a guy named Peter and some other disciples, and how he met them at a time when they were beaten down mentally, especially Peter. How do I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, out to the right, I've listed some verses from the Gospel of Mark. And if you've never read the Gospel of Mark, even though it says Mark, Mark was Peter's secretary. He was a younger man that was a friend of Peter and some of the people in the church. And he recorded Peter's account of Jesus' life. And it's very honest. In fact, it doesn't always paint Peter in the best light. So it shows that Somewhere along the line, Jesus did a work in his life. But here's what it says, Mark 14. Here's why Peter was beaten down. On the way, Jesus told them, this is the night before he was crucified. All of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. 
And all the others bowed the same. Now it says that later that night, Jesus was arrested and Peter followed from a distance. Then we find out as he's trying to figure out what to do in all this chaos, we pick it up in verse 66 of Mark 14. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John tell us that they were warming themselves around a charcoal fire because it was cold that night. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And then it tells us that the rooster crowed again. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Fascinating, isn't it? So Jesus comes to Peter when he's beaten down like that. And one of the things I love about that phrase is because Jesus rose again, he could do this. He could come to Peter. And because he's alive, he can come to you. He can come to me even this very day. So uh, if you're following along, what I want you to see in this restoration, this restored event, is that Jesus sets the stage for a memorable experience of restoration. Jesus sets the stage for a memorable experience of restoration. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John 21, if you happen to bring one, or if you're using a device. In John chapter 21, we're going to look actually primarily at the conversation we find in verses 15 through 22. But let me just tell you what I mean by setting the stage. Everything that happened to Jesus on Good Friday and Easter happened down south in Israel, in Jerusalem. What happened is, is that after Jesus rose again, you remember how he said to Peter, I'll meet you back up in Galilee, where it all started, where we're all from. So now they're back in Galilee on the same shore, most likely, that it all started for Jesus and Peter together. And there on that beach, something had happened when Jesus called Peter. Peter, a fisherman, had not caught anything the night before. And after Jesus got done teaching, he says to Peter, let's go out fishing. And Peter goes, I, I know you're not a fisherman. This isn't the best time of day. He says, let's do it. He says, if you say so, I will. They go out, they catch a huge amount of fish right on this same spot, right out in the water. And Peter is blown away. But this particular day, Jesus is back on that same beach. He shows up, and the Bible says that they don't recognize him at first. Why is that? Well, either he had the ability to keep them from recognizing him. It could have been foggy. It could have been that there was always people coming down. They just didn't happen to recognize him at first. We're told by some that uh, fish dealers would come down to the shore to ask the fishermen from time to time, did you catch any fish? Can I buy some from you to sell at the market? But this guy says, Jesus says, friends, did you catch anything? And they say, no, thanks for reminding us. And then he says, well, if you put your net out on the right side, you'll find some. And sure enough, boom. This is an eyewitness account. 153 large fish were caught. And as soon as that happens, 
John, who's in the boat with Peter, says, uh, this is familiar. And he says, it's the Lord. And as soon as he says, it's the Lord, Peter jumps. He, he throws his clothes on because he'd been stripped down for work. He throws the rest of his clothes back on and he swims, which shows you he's startled. You don't normally put clothes on to swim uh, when you're trying to get there, but he wanted to get there fast. And he gets to Jesus on the beach. And when he gets there, he discovers that Jesus has been making breakfast. You can almost smell it, can't you? Feel the warmth. And there he's already had fish on the, on the fire, and it's a charcoal fire. Remember what happened around a fire? There's fish and bread, and that reminds us that he once fed people with fish and bread from those same hands. And Peter now is sitting there, and a conversation starts. And so the, the Sea of Galilee, those pictures of the Sea of Galilee tells us that this really happened at an actual place. And let's pick it up. Now, here's what I, I want you to notice as I read it. Ask yourself what stands out to you in this conversation. Let me read it if you uh, would follow along with me. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, that's like someone saying, Jeffrey Paul Nelson, has got my full attention. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, you love me. Peter was hurt. That word there is actually the word for grieved because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, as I was reading this text, I was reminded of something I discovered several years ago. Um, I was a psychology and philosophy major in college, and there was a guy named Viktor Frankl, uh, who was a psychiatrist uh, in the same years that Sigmund Freud was a contemporary. Listen to what Donald Miller writes. In 1942, psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, along with his parents and pregnant wife, were taken by Nazi soldiers into the concentration camps, where his family would eventually be killed. Frankl survived the camps, including Auschwitz, and in the most dire of human circumstances, realized a personality theory involving a man's need for meaning, a theory that would con he would, uh, would contend with Sigmund Freud, who also was alive at that time, and argued that man's primary desire was not for meaning, but for pleasure. But in fact, Frankel went on to say, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. Tested in the concentration camps, Frank Frankel realized no amount of torture could keep a person from living a fulfilling life, 
if only they had three elements working for them. A task you're working on that helps others, a person to love, and a worthy explanation for their suffering. His finding, interestingly, mirrors what Jesus does for Peter in this conversation. And if you're following along, what I want you to see is that I see in this text Jesus restoring Peter by offering three things that we all need for hope, for meaning, for purpose, to move forward when we're beaten down. The first is a loving relationship. The second is a task to fulfill. And the third is a redemptive view of suffering. Some people have shortened it to simplify it. And in my notes, I actually have different phrases out to the right of each one that I just read to you. If you want to write these down, you can, because it may be helpful for you to remember that in the coming days, how can you move forward? Well, first of all, next to a loving relationship, someone has said someone to love. Someone to love. Next to a task to fulfill, something to do. Something to do. And next to a redemptive view of suffering, something to look forward to. Something to love. Something to do. Something to look forward to. Now, notice how Jesus does it. Would you follow along with me, if you would, in the notes there? Three times, Jesus gives Peter the chance to say, I love you, to Jesus. Three times. Do you mind reading that first gray box with me out loud as he starts the questions three times? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is an interesting question. What does he mean more than these? I think he's referring back to, while some of these other disciples are sitting around with him in the fire, that he had said, I love you more than these other disciples, and I'm going to prove it by being there for you, even if they all bail. Now, Jesus is saying, do you want to take that one back? Is it still true? And of course, Peter doesn't say, that's still true. What does Peter say? You know that I love you. And he's been looking forward to saying that because the way things ended when Jesus died left an incredibly awkward silence. We're told that this is the third time Jesus has appeared to the disciples. So we don't know everything that's gotten worked out between Jesus and Peter, but we know that in many ways, by the way he flew out of the boat, he wants to be close to Jesus. And he wants Jesus to know, I love you. I don't know if you're like this, friends, but sometimes the greatest gift you can give someone is giving them a chance to say what they really wanted to say so that they can affirm it to you. It's kind of like resetting a bone. I was thinking um, in my life about some things. Have you ever done something you regret that you wish you could erase? I've got several. Uh, One of them, let me just show you a picture of one of them. Um, This is a picture of a barn just down the road from Trisha's parents' house up in the Chicago suburbs. And this was actually her grandparents' barn. They lived right down the road. Uh, when Trish and I started dating in high school, um, and I was, by this time was in college, um, I broke up with Trish behind that barn one night. And so she walked home to her parents. Uh, you know, I'd kind of left her uh, in not a good place. And I will tell you that It was not one of the better decisions in my life, according to my family members and hers. And I would agree, actually. I look back on it. So we eventually got back together by God's grace. And two years later, on that same month, 
behind that white barn, I had a wedding ring and I asked her to marry me right next to that same barn because my mother had said, Jeff, you know, one way to erase bad memories is to create new ones. What Jesus is doing on this beach is he's saying, you remember where it all started? You remember how you weren't sure about me? I want to take you back. I want to create a fire and I want to give you a chance to reset. And again, if you've never read this about resetting a bone, it's a fascinating thing. When you break a bone of the body, that bone will often need to be put back into place so that it can heal properly. The process of resetting a bone requires a doctor to manipulate the broken ends of the bone into their original position and fix them in place with a cast or brace or traction. This is often very painful, but by doing so, new bone can grow back cleanly between the broken edges and better ensure that mobility and bone integrity are restored. In fact, if reset properly, the bone can actually be twice as strong at the very place of the break than it was before. Now, here's what I want you to notice. What Jesus is doing is an unfolding process with Peter. The, the restoring work has been set in motion by this conversation. But notice that it's painful. It, it, the Bible says Peter's hurt by being asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But it gives him a chance to reset the bone by saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Why is Jesus so concerned about that? I'll tell you why. He's a genius. He knows that if we are going to move forward and do anything in life, if it doesn't come out of the center of a love for Jesus, it'll just be a sounding gong. It'll just be a lot of activity. But if we do things from that spirit, Napoleon, the great conqueror, once said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what do we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. It's powerful. Do you love me? Because if we can reset that, and now you can move forward with a kind of motivation that'll be the right one. I said to you before, this is a loving relationship is what we need. A, a relationship involves at least two parties, at least two people where it's give and take. Jesus had already proven that he loved Peter. Now what he's doing, he's asking Peter if he loves him back. And if you're following along, Jesus died and rose again to have a love relationship with us. Years ago, a man told me I'd never heard that before. So if you've never heard that before, I want to share this good news with you. Jesus wants to have a love relationship with you. Not a performance, not a competition. And so when he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? He's saying, Peter, you turned it into a competition. You turned it into a performance. You turned it into some religious kind of thing. It's a relationship. How's our relationship? Do you love me? Notice the second thing he does is that he offers him a task to fulfill, something to do. If you're following along, three times, Jesus gives Peter the same assignment. Love my sheep. Love my sheep. Do you see that in that second gray box? Feed my lambs, 
take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, I just need to stop and tell you this. I would imagine this conversation going this way. Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Good. Thank you for telling me. I just needed to know that. But he doesn't do that. He goes, do you love me? Then love my sheep. And I imagine Peter was thinking, Lord, um, your sheep are difficult to love. Um, as a pastor, I can attest to this, but I bet you can too, just being a part of a church, is that sometimes we go, oh man, there's a lot of warts and all in sheep. And they're, not, they're, they're, they're hard to love sometimes. And so we want to say, I love you, Jesus, but I don't love your sheep. And this has become quite popular to think this way. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Love me, love my sheep. Package deal. I made you to have an important part, a role in this world, and it was to be part of something bigger than yourself. Friends, again, if you want to get better, if you're mentally broken down, you automatically start getting better if you turn outward and get involved in a task that helps you care about someone outside of yourself. Jesus does this, and he gives them a task to fulfill. But notice, again, that it's very clear. And so if you're following along, Jesus died and rose again to make us his very own people. Jesus died and rose again to make us his very own people. And I imagine that Jesus was laughing when Peter was thinking to himself, you're a sheep are hard to love. He's going, you're one of my sheep. And by now, you should be pretty humble because I still love you warts and all. And I have a plan for you. I have, a, I have something for you to do that'll actually make you a bigger person instead of a smaller person. I want you to do it. And so did Peter learn this lesson? Friends, I, I don't know if you know this. Jesus died that he might have a people of his very own. Look at what Titus 2.14 says. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. So he didn't just die for us to individually go to heaven. He died that he might have a people. On the cross, he was dreaming of his church. He was dreaming of people as imperfect as all of us are, including Peter. He wanted to bring us together, that we might have a task to fulfill together in the world. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 about this. But you, he's writing to believers now, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We were doing that earlier in the service, weren't we? Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in this world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives together that among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and what, friends? Glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the reasons we teach the network class is because we believe that when Jesus saves you and saves me, he gives us a task to fulfill together with other believers, and he gives us gifts to do it capabilities. It changed my life when I discovered long before I ever knew I was going to be a pastor, that he had given me the gift of encouragement. And when I began to understand that, I began to look at every day as an opportunity to get out of bed and say, well, who's one person I can encourage today before I go to bed? 
And friends, he's given you different gifts and you have a task to fulfill. And let me just say, on this Sunday, as I prepare to go on sabbatical, he has a plan for us and he wants you to be part of it. And he doesn't want you flying solo. He wants you to be part of the people of God. Is that you? Have you said yes to that? Love me, love my sheep, love my people. The third thing that I want you to notice is that he gives Peter a redemptive view of suffering, something to look forward to, even if he has to suffer. If you're following along two times, Jesus says, follow me, even though you'll suffer. Follow me, even though you'll suffer. So three times, three times, and two times. And this redemptive view of suffering, where do I get this? Would you mind reading that third gray box with me out loud from verse 19 of chapter 21? Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. You may want to circle the word glorify. Then he said to him, follow me. And again, you remember that conversation where Peter tried to like uh, take the focus off him? What about him? Jesus goes, um, that's really not your story. You follow me. Can I just say something about following? We as Americans bristle against this when we really understand it. We don't want to follow anybody. We want to lead our own lives. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, if you love me, follow me. And he had said that to the beginning and it had changed Peter's last three years and it was going to change the rest of his life if he said yes. And when he says, follow me, that means I'm the Lord. Let me lead your life. I didn't just die so you could go to heaven. I died to lead your life. Follow me. And you know what? Peter did. If you're following along, Jesus died and rose again to ensure that glory awaits us. Jesus died and rose again to ensure that glory awaits us. I did something interesting this last week. Um, if you play out Peter's story, I already told you that Mark's gospel was some of what he did later in his life by sharing the story with Mark, who wrote it down, and we now have it. But also, if you read First and Second Peter, these are letters that he wrote to the church. So this last week, I reread those, and I saw it from a whole different perspective after studying for this. And so let me just show you um, that the words that I noticed that stood out were glory. And remember, Jesus had already said, glorify. You're going to have a purpose even in suffering. Here's what I've discovered, friends. As a pastor, being next to people that have gone through excruciating, difficult things in life, the people that are able to move forward in the right spirit are those people that through over time, sometimes it takes a while to get to this place, but they realize, I don't want to be here in the hospital. I don't want to be going through this, but Lord, show me how to glorify you in it so that I have a purpose, a redemptive purpose, even in suffering. Now, Notice this, 1 Peter 4, look at what Peter says later in his life. Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. And the word glory, glory, glory. Now, he, does, he goes on, another verse, look at 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory, notice that, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There is a glory that's waiting us when God calls us to follow him, even in times of suffering. 
that's hard to explain to other people. All I can say is that because he references the Holy Spirit there, when the Holy Spirit got into Peter's life, he realized then for every moment of his life, good times or hard times, for this I have Jesus. And I don't necessarily want to go through all the things. It may lead me where I don't want to go. But you know, Peter, if you're following along, he followed Jesus. And look what I said here, loved and restored now. Peter follows Jesus with eternal purpose. Loved and restored, Peter follows Jesus with eternal purpose. Friends, you may walk out of here today and say, I'm not interested in Jesus restoring me, but I will find something to someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. I just don't need Jesus to do it. Can I just tell you, whatever else you find to do, it won't be eternal. But if you have a love relationship with Jesus and a task to fulfill from him and a redemptive view of suffering, it'll last you both now and into eternity. It's really a good investment, a good decision to follow him. And uh, again, let me just tell you a story if you don't know this already. So if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that just a few weeks later, Peter stands up in front of a crowd that's hostile there in Jerusalem. And instead of being afraid this time, he preaches boldly that Jesus is the Christ and you need to surrender your life to him and follow him too. And 3,000 people go, cut to the heart. He's speaking to me too. He's alive. And they give their lives to him. And what's the very next thing they do? They devote themselves to the fellowship, to the people of God, and they give themselves fully to being part of that so they can witness to the goodness of God in this city. Now, notice what happens. Peter gets arrested. He gets told not to talk about Jesus. He gets beaten for still speaking about Jesus. Then another time he gets arrested and an angel sets him free in an amazing way as the church is praying for him. And eventually, tradition tells us that Peter was in fact, like Jesus prophesied, crucified. But when it came time for him to be crucified, he requested that he be crucified upside down because he was not worthy of dying the same way his Lord had died. Something happened to Peter. Jesus is in the life-restoring business. So as we think about this, here's the question I want to end with. Am I learning to fly to Jesus or am I wanting distance? Am I learning to fly to Jesus or am I wanting distance? Friends, you remember I said earlier that when he told Jesus, I'll be there for you, he followed at a distance. But did you know that actually he had requested distance from the first time he met Jesus? If you go back to Luke 5, that first time that big catch of fish happened on the same beach, have you ever read this before? Luke 5, 8 and 9. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught as there were others were with them. And friends, here's what he's saying is distance, distance. But now he's a different person. What has he learned about Jesus? That when you fail, that when you are beaten down, the wisest move you and I can make is to fly to Jesus as fast as we can. So are you okay with one more picture? I've been showing you some pictures from my life here, getting a little nostalgic. This is Green Lake, Wisconsin. I'm standing on this stage today because of what Jesus did at that very spot right there. Two years before, in the same grounds, Jesus had made himself completely real to me. 
the Bible opened up to me. He was real to me as any person I've ever known. But I got away from him. I turned my back on him and distanced myself from him. Two years later, at 17, I was at this crossroad, this fork on the road. And across the ticker of my mind, a conversation happened from him that I knew was him in about 30 clicks. And he said, Jeff, you are at a fork in the road. If you choose distance, I'll let you do it. But if you come back to me, I've got good plans for you. I'm not even going to tell you what they are, but they're good. And at that same moment, my heart melted for the first time in months, and I wanted that. Jesus knows that if it's not a want to, if it's not an I love you, it'll just be out of guilt or shame or fear. He wants our hearts, because if he gets our hearts, he's got everything, and we can do it together. So here's how we want to close before we sing. Peter wrote some words to us that remind us on this Easter that even if we're beaten down, we can have hope because we have a love relationship that's eternal. We have a task to fulfill that's worth it. And we have a redemptive view of suffering. So would you mind standing? We're going to read this together as a church and hear the word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a little long. Let's do it. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love this next part. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's sing about this hope he gives us. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.